Greetings friends, and welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, we're back looking at gaming in the worlds of Moorcock, and Dave and I are joined for this chat by friend of the show and GM extraordinaire, Andrew Clark, aka Clarky the Cruel. On this occasion, we aren't looking at a specific system. Rather, I've been a little bit inspired by Clarky's gaming ethos and approach to creating sprawling sandbox campaigns involving multiple groups and shared online resources, and, in the latest case, rotating GMs. The world of role-playing games is fascinating as, like any other art form, pastime or creative pursuit, there are a million ways to do it, and it's incredible how passionate people get about their favourite modes and approaches. Fortunately, we just like having a couple of brews and gassing about it, and there are lots and lots of games out there that aspire to be Morecockian, or claim or quote Morecock as a direct influence. This show forms part of a one-two punch of gaming as, coming next, I return to the Stormbringer RPG again for a fresh take with a new guest, and that'll be coming up next time. For this show, we had a couple of technical issues, but the online backup did its job, although the sound quality is a little bit wanting, but we still managed to have a good yak. So, sit back, relax, and join Dave, Clarky, and me in Derry and Tom's, as we chew the fat about Moorcock, gaming, and sandbox in the multiverse. Oh, and coffee, for some reason. Hang in there. But of course, um, you know, not only did we only have three channels, this might be strange to you as well, Dave, being over there in the States. We used to watch telly and see in America that they had multiple TV channels, whereas when we grew up, there were three, and one of them didn't come on till tea time. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-Channel 4, there were three channels, and one of them didn't even start till tea time. Wow. I'm old enough to remember Saturday morning cartoons. Now, I definitely had that when I was a kid to watch, you know, every Saturday morning. And then after that, I don't know. I don't know where where it all went, but uh, it was generally just the news, and my dad'd be watching that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, even our Saturday morning cartoons were rationed <laughs> with, 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 with with something, you know, some form of intellectual fiber. Yeah, even if That's it was Keith Chegwin, <laughs> Keith Chegwin freezing his butt off out on the sands of Morecambe or something. You know, I, I was only, I was only talking to Phil about this uh, a few days ago because quite randomly, and I can't remember why we got onto this in conversation, but we were talking about camp coffee. Now, oh, do you, yes. Do you remember that? Yes, I've tried it, I've, and I wasn't fussed. Was it the camp coffee with chicory, or the real yes, coffee? Yes, the chicory, the chicory. Yeah, so, again, Dave, bit of a weird British history, yeah. post-war history lesson. Because huh. we couldn't get coffee in the UK much during the war, people got a taste for a coffee substitute, and it was basically chicory. So when I was a kid, my my great-grandma had got this taste for a chicory, and as a kid you got camp coffee with chicory, and it was a, bo- a bottle of syrup. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you, you put some syrup in a cup and added hot water and milk, and I can remember trying it and being utterly confused by it. But it's not something <laughs> you generally see anymore, although only about probably 10 years ago, it was one of those, like, Clark, one of those, like, B&M bargains-type shops. Mm. I actually saw camp coffee syrup. It wasn't coffee with chicory, 
but it it might still be around. I think it wow. was designed to be like something for like the troops in the colonies because mm. that that was the picture, huh. wasn't it? It was like a Highland soldier having a drink of it. That's right, yeah. With like some sort of servant, but I think because obviously coffee you need to keep dry, don't you? And you know, obviously you keep a jar of it, uh, not a jar of a bottle of this bottle. stuff, bottle yeah. really, you know, you could just keep, and you wouldn't have to worry about keeping it dry. Yeah. So better than Folgers? Where where where, where does it stand? <laughs> oh, what's Folgers? Folgers Fold- sounds oh. exotic. Yeah. Oh my, Folgers! So Folgers is a, a powdered sort of coffee um, thing. Ah. That's there's, there's a lot of that here in the states. A lot I've had it. Uh, it might have been brought over by the archaeologists, but basically when I was working in Ireland, we had a lot of the. Uh, you know, powdered Folgers coffee to start the yeah. day. Um, although I was more of a tea man myself because I'm like, I'm in Ireland. I'm going to get some good black tea right now. Yeah. Um, good proper cup to start the day. That's what I'm talking about. None of that powdery. I ugh, never even ugh. saw oh, I bad. never even saw real coffee probably until the 1990s. No, no I think everyone in this country pretty much. No, not everyone, but an awful lot of people <laughs> in this country just drink instant. I do. Yeah. In, in the 80s, yeah. granulated coffee was posh. Yes, it was. It, it was all powdered coffee. So you got Ma- yeah. Maxwell House powdered and the most hilarious coffee in the Mellow world. Beth. Mellow Birds. <laughs> which, <laughs> which was the one that had the long running adverts where it was all Artic and a Shag. That was that was Net Gold Blend. That was Net Cafe Gold. Gold Blend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a long running ad series about like, you know. One of them moves into the flat and the other one has to borrow the gold blend. And then, yeah. like, they carried it on in a series of adverts for like a decade. They did. And it was the guy out of Buffy, the vampire slayer, wasn't it? Yeah, the it was. It was Anthony Head. Yeah. Anthony Head. Yeah. 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 Well, you know what? We've, we've already hit our digression um, allowance. <laughs> and we've, we've, not even, we've not even got started. So, why are we in Derry and Tom's with Dave and Clarky? Well, it just so happens that it's. Over a year, well, it's 14 months since we last did an RPG episode. That was RPG episode part three. So we're here for part four. Why? Because someone asked for it. So what the hell? Jason Connolly, <laughs> this is for you. We're doing RPGs and Mocock part is that, four. Is that, is that the Jason Connolly from Robin of Sherwood? That's Jason Connery. Oh right, sorry. This is this is Jason Connolly, actually a podcaster himself, and oh. I will uh, I will reference his podcast in the uh, in the outro. But okay. he he dropped me a line during the week, said he thoroughly enjoyed our first RPG episode when we talked about Stormbringer, which we'll get back to in a wee while, I'm sure. And he was very interested in hearing more of our thoughts on gaming, and it it just so happens that I I have kind of been building up in my head to run in another game and i want to do something vaguely more cocky but once again we have to kind of delve into that that whole rabbit hole of what makes a game more cocky but we'll get to that in good time i've had thoughts on the dog walk this morning ah good but you're a new guest on the podcast clarky so oh. as is traditional we have to ask what is your history first of all with Moorcock and how did you get into him I think, and it's it it's fuzzy, but I think that I, for some reason, my mum was my mum had very strange snobberies, so we weren't allowed to watch children's television on ITV. 
and also we went to Wallasey Village Library rather than Wallasey Central Library because obviously Wallasey Village Set Library was a slightly posher bit of Wallasey and I think when I was getting to about 11, 12, I was allowed to start to explore the adult bit. And there was a big, intimidating, black covered with like quite stylized artwork, um, hardback book, and it was the first Corin book. Mm. So I think 12-year-old me took that home and read it with all the not suitable for a 12-year-old content that was in that. <laughs> and absolutely um, loved and was disturbed by it. Oh, yeah, because all the eye gouging and hand lopping off well, that, but, that happens, like, what, 20 pages in? It's pretty uh, yeah, extreme, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's like, oh, we're being bored. Oh, anyway. Oh, uh, you know, horrible things are being done to my sisters and etc yeah. oh yeah. no he burnt down my gymnasia yeah. yeah yeah so so i think that was it and then very soon afterwards or roughly contemporaneous we were going into secondary school and then all the kind of nerds there it was very much like there was none of this Moorcock versus Tolkien thing. It was all anything you could get your hands on from mm. Robert E. Howard to Tolkien to... Well, I don't think any of us lowered ourselves to... Who was that guy who did the terrible Tolkien knockoffs? Which uh, one? Uh, <laughs> sort of Shanalana Terry, Terry Brooks. That's uh. the one. No, I don't think anyone lowered themselves to those levels, but, yeah. but Lovecraft and all sorts. But Moorcock was a fairly consistent strain running through that. So we were all lapping up. Um, in the words of the half man, half biscuit song, Moorcock, 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 I hear you cry or whatever mm. it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um I think it's uh Moorcock, Moorcock, you fervently moan. That's the one that yeah. you spot on. Yes, you put me to shame. Mm. Yeah. Um so yeah, so it was just it was just a, a constant stream. And that went on for probably a good 10 years. Um, possibly actually longer. I think I was reading one of the Colonel Piat books when I went to hmm. New York, which was in 2001, October 2001. That was a weird trip. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it was pre-booked, so I just went. Gotcha. Uh, and stayed in a hostel where actually there was a load of guys who were staying who were working on the um, like uh, rescue guys working on the Twin Towers. Mm. So it was weird drinking companions. Mm. Um, but uh, long story short, and then I feel I've, I think I've confessed this to you before, Andrew. I've I've fallen a bit out of love with uh, some of the later Moorcock. It's that thing where I kind of feel he needs a bit of an editor. Mm. And I feel it's a bit of indulgent, a bit of in, bit indulgent. Um, but I've I've read some of the early Moorcock. I didn't get to finish a novel to my eight-year-old with the occasional boulderization when ladies of the night were mentioned and yeah. things. Um, but it's rollicking good stuff. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, we haven't got into to any of the kind of later stuff. Although we are in my own head i classify fortress of the pearl as late moorcock which of mm. course 
it's mid mocock at the mm-hmm. oldest. Uh, but that's just kind of the way my my brain processes it all. But yeah, it'll be it'll probably twenty thirty four before we get to the Moonbeam Roads trilogy. And I've got to say, I struggled with it a little bit the first time I read it. But I am looking forward to revisiting it. So, and actually, you're a seasoned podcaster yourself as well, aren't you? And you've covered a lot of this type of stuff on the podcast you used to run. I'm a recovering podcaster, I'd say. Mm. Um, so this is a bit dangerous in case I uh, no. relapse. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so for from seven years. Mm-hmm. Me and Matt did a podcast on the Geek Syndicate Network, which was a, a bit of a Tyson in nerd circles for a number of years. Of, I think it's it's kind of gone down now. Um, but we did a podcast called Dissecting Worlds, which was kind of like digging into the... Pretentiously, we called it the social science in science fiction, fantasy and horror. <laughs> but it was stuff like, you know, if the click on... It, how does the Klingon Empire actually work? Is it all warriors or, you know, are the gardeners, you know, battling with the weeds or how does that society actually work and things like that? Hmm. Yeah, and we did series on sexuality and series on um, villains and and all sorts of stuff. Hmm. And most of that's still available, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, mm. there's a there's a link on my page that definitely links to some live lips, a lot of live lips and pages. Yeah, well, I'll link to that in the show notes as well, so people can check that out because it is it was it was a good podcast, and it, you were podcasting before it was cool, as well, which uh, I think it's fair to say, because you know us Johnny Come Latelys were only doing it for the you know for the. Um, it's just for groupies and money, yeah. Yeah, it's for it's for the second hand glory. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing it yeah and the, and, and the delicious delicious beer as well yeah. so now of course you know this is uh ostensibly a podcast about mocap related stuff but today we're talking about gaming so this is one i'm going to ask you both but i think we'll start with you dave sure. how did how did you get into the rpg world yeah i mean um yeah let's see i so I mean, I, I was always uh, in the, I mean, for as long as I can remember, I was always in the comic books as a kid and, and just kind of going to various comic book shops, you know, um, eventually, you know, my, my dad read me Lord of the Rings, you know, before bed as a kid. And in addition to, you know, Led Zeppelin having songs about Lord of the Rings and other related sort of things, mm-hmm. getting into Norse mythology after, you know, learning what, you know, Swedish was because we're Swedish um and just that that whole kind of thing and then eventually at some point i discovered you know dungeons and dragons and 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 things like that um also being obviously a big big video gamer my whole life um you know basically dungeons and dragons and rpg elements have kind of seeped into what became my most favorite games to play um so that was always kind of my preferred genre my preferred uh, kind of you know those those are the worlds i always like to visit and really just i, I always appreciate being able to get lost in a world um you know create a character usually based um or not even based just completely ripping off conan or something like that <laughs> most of the time um uh and then you know i i had like a starter kit of D as a kid which of course i could get nobody to play with me because it was just too long and nobody had the uh the desire the attention span but eventually i found a good uh, good group of uh, people who were into it and so actually all through all throughout COVID, basically uh 
you know, twice a week we'd do uh, we do Dungeons and Dragons with my good friend Arthur and my girlfriend and eventually some of his friends. Um, and that was a fantastic experience, you know. I mean, also, again, with another character named Conan, but with a K. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, so in terms of, like, tabletop RPGs, it, it was not something I could ever usually get people to join me with very easily. And I think that's that's something that everybody can kind of relate to. You know, you have these big plans. You, oh, I just got this RPG. It looks so cool. You know, of course, obviously, I got the Conan one. I have the whole thing and nobody to play with. Oh. <laughs> but, you know, stuff like D&D, um, whenever I could get any sort of... Uh, any of that going it was always a uh, it was always a treat it was always a great time and it's something i, I love doing and sadly i've not been able to do as much as i would like but it's something i've all i've uh, researched a lot and um you know been into uh for as long as i've been a nerd which has been basically my entire existence so mm. <laughs> there you go mm. yeah it's uh it, it gets harder as you get older <laughs> to actually find these groups, but that's something where the, the internet is coming extraordinarily handy. And oh yeah, and it, it Zoom. Was, yeah, you know, it's only a couple of years ago. Um, the only reason, really, I know Clarky here is because number one, initially kind of making contact through Twitter through the RPG world or the RPG community, but then um, he dropped me a line and said, "Would you like to join a game on a Thursday night?" So I've been gaming pretty much regularly every Thursday night. It's got to be a couple of years, a couple of years now, Clarky. Mm-hmm. Easy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and just as a, a little bit of barbarian bonding, the first <laughs> character I ever played in Clarky's Black Hat game on a Thursday night was Krang the Iron Bear, a seventeen-year-old barbarian from the northern wastes, out to get to to, to find his way in the world of civilization. <laughs> and he ended what up a name. Re- Ended up running a cereal cafe and wearing a giant cowboy hat. Yeah, what, you know what sometimes it's how it goes, right? So, <laughs> you what, never what a, know. What a journey! <laughs> you, you, you missed out, uh, you know, the uh, cat goddess on the way. Oh well, you know, we'll, we'll save that for another time when <laughs> when, when I start writing the journal of Krang the Iron Bear. <laughs> but maybe I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tussle between Krang and Bob Sav- and Roy Savaloy. Oh, Roy Savaloy for who Definitely. gets for who gets the next journal treatment? <laughs> so, uh, Clarky, how, how did you get into RPGs? Um, nothing as cool as um, as Dave. I um, I there was a cartoon called Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And I quite liked that cartoon, Dungeons and Dragons. And then I was in a toy shop and there was a game called Dungeons and Dragons and it had a red box and a guy attacking a dragon on the front. And I thought, ooh. So I asked for that for Christmas and then I got it for Christmas and I could make no head of tail of what you were supposed to do. And then Eduardo Pellegrino, who proved to be the world's worst or best power gamer and subsequently has become a merchant banker, which explains a lot. Um, managed to fathom out the rules and so I was kind of just playing with him and then he made contact with a lad called John who unfortunately has subsequently died but then the real gateway drug there were some other lads from John's school and there was some Eduardo went to the local independent school and there was a couple of lads from there but there was um, 
when I say independent school, I mean like private school, public school. And but the, the, their John's older brother Dave was at Lancaster University, and was like nineteen twenty, and he was getting all. And, and this is in the days where they got dole during the holidays, and so when he wasn't wandering around doing his CMD stuff, he was in the role playing club as well, and he was getting all these games. So very soon, I was having my eyes open to things like. Boots Hill and you can play cowboys and gangbusters and you can play cops and robbers and aftermath and you can do a hell of a lot of maths and die from like <laughs> leprosy or dysentery <laughs> or you know um and we we did loads and loads of stuff and it just kept on with me all through university um friends in university when I moved to new cities I met people in gaming through that and then when I moved home um, before everyone had kids, we were able to carry on uh, gaming in that community as well. And now it's mainly online and it's mainly with people from sort of the Grognod Files uh, circle or people that I've met through that circle and a few people from work who's where the first day group kind of originated because um, I've got kids who are 8 and 10, so going out for hours in the evening is, is less some an option than it would be mm. um so yeah so I've just sort of kept on and it's always been a pretty much constant there's been an odd year off here or there but i've never had the kind of classic deep freeze mm. yeah um i i definitely went through the deep freeze uh process for for quite a protracted period of time i never stopped buying games i just didn't play them for a long time mm. and then i think laws our mate robber and our mate Neil, who we used to game with back in the day, we um, we all decided to get together and play Call of Cthulhu. And we, and everybody came to to my house, and that was back in the days before Phil started playing. So Phil sat downstairs and we all went upstairs. And because we don't see each other very often, uh, we decided to do what we usually do, which is combine it with drinking. Mm. And I, I ran it, and it was an absolute unmitigated disaster. <laughs> um, because I, I was so out of practice, so dusty. Um, we decided to drink Manhattans before we started, and, <laughs> and, and we, we had a, a, a shitload of Manhattans because we were playing in like 1930s Weimar Germany. Got to set the tone. Yeah, be, before it was cool, <laughs> I might add. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we we just got absolutely shit first. I think we played for 90 minutes. It was a complete disaster. All fell apart. My my GMing was absolutely horrible. Um, but despite that, we did decide to continue. Robbo dropped out. Robbo never came back. He, <laughs> he just declared himself out and never came and played again. And, although he was involved in the Heartmoon game that kicked off the Gerard Arthur Connolly character. Although mm-hmm. actually, no, I think he was older than that. I'd played, I'd played that character on numerous times before. So then the next time Loz ran Call of Cthulhu, we all got pissed. We all argued. We argued for about 30 minutes about the um, practicalities of parachuting into Occupied Crete, disguised as a monk. Would the beard, <laughs> would the beard glue stick or, or, or would the beard come off? Neil got really drunk and really, really angry and, and didn't like... That was a complete disaster as well. But nevertheless, we went for strike three and it worked, <laughs> so we carried on gaming again. But yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty painful, those first, two, those first two attempts. This is like 15 years ago or something now. Mm-hmm. Maybe not quite 15 years. But anyway, so 
when it comes to trying to get your head around what would be a Moorcock type game i've been thinking about this quite a bit and uh, the first rpg episode we did we had a look at stormbringer third edition and we had thoughts about it and i actually ran it and we talked about that in the second rpg episode that we did mm-hmm. our, our take on stormbringer third edition was was quite controversial in some spaces because we were sort of critical of it um I thought we were critical of it in a in a fairly light and breezy way, but we did get a a really wonderful comment on the uh, on the website, which kind of set me to thinking, and uh, and it said, uh, "Sorry, but the wildly unbalanced rules of Stormbringer First Second Edition perfectly rhymes with the general setting of the world of Elric, the Young Kingdoms. They are so chaotic and capricious that thinking of more balance only serves a contemporary perception of how the games should be." In my view, a cowardly New Age game in perception where characters can't even die, like D&D 5th edition. Any old game can get... I, I've had characters die in 5th edition. Yeah. Any old, game gets, TPK. Yeah. <laughs> Any old game can get flame torch for being not up to date with a newly formed view 40 years later. You seem to go into the game with already formed bad views. Not fair. I've game mastered the Stormbringer game since the late 80s. Of course I house rule the mechanics, but only slightly. The main thing is going with the dark, dangerous and already chaotic world of the Young Kingdoms. If not, and if somehow expecting D&D thinking, you really are far from grasping what this game wants to depict. Ooh. So, um, yeah. I think that's a fair point. (laughs) I I I think it's a fair point. I think it's also... um, Incredibly defensive and and a little bit hysterical, it, but it, yeah, it can maybe be delivered in a slightly different yeah, way. Yeah, but, but you know, yeah. fair point. We were bagging on a forty-year-old game, <laughs> <laughs> but we did have a go at it, and we went through the whole process of entirely random character generation, and want because it's so Gonzo third edition. You can end up with a Melnibonian sorcerer. Or you can end up with a beggar with leprosy. Yeah. <laughs> so five characters entirely randomly created, and we had three sailors, a warrior, and a leper with a beggar with leprosy. <laughs> wow. Re- reflecting the chaos <laughs> of the young kingdoms. Yeah. And uh, and they were all deeply average in terms of capabilities, except the leper <laughs> who was useless at absolutely everything. But we, we we did take a lot of entertainment from the fact that. He had to roll to see if his fingers fell off every time he climbed a rope or something like that. Um, so <laughs> we did have a lot of fun with it. So, you yeah, know, it, it was a fun game. But that aside, I have been thinking about this quite a bit. And, and how do you go about creating a Murkockian vibe in a mm. fantasy game? Because lots of games are inspired by Michael Murkock. And lots of games claim to be... You know, influenced by Mocock in terms of the game design and the setting, and we know we've got like things like Warhammer that just kind of take wholesale huge tracts of Mocock and repurpose it, and sometimes not even really repurpose it to keep it exactly as it is, and just and just kind of apply it to their world. I don't think really think they ever particularly capture the tone, but what are Mocockian tropes from a gaming perspective? I think. And this was the thought I had on my dog walk this morning. And I think this is a particularly Elrickian one. Hmm. But I think it probably applies to Hawkmoon as well. 
and it, it, it creates a tension in gaming. But but with Elric, he's doomed. Hmm. Okay, you know he's doomed. The world's doomed. And it's and with uh, Hawkmoon, you've got the destiny of the rune staff and stuff hmm. like that. So I was thinking about it. I was thinking, really, if you're going to have a character, and if that character is going to be, or party are going to be eternal championish, you almost need to, at your session zero, establish what that destiny is that they're travelling towards, and then get all the players in a kind of three days on speed, sat on the toilet, typing pages, to throw in ideas and then the GM almost goes away and draws like the plot map for other scenarios to get there so it's not like people know what's going to happen and you probably do need a system like uh, our chum's perception of 5th edition where people don't necessarily die so there's a degree of plot armour which doesn't mean they can't be tortured and have their eye gouged out and their hand chucked off or whatever but you you have that sense of doom and that sense of predestination. Mm. Yeah. And they're driving. Now, I'm not forward. sure if that's fair for all Morcock, but but thinking about sort of Elric and Hawkman and stuff, that was the one that kind of struck me as how you'd get that vibe and, and those competing forces, whether they're typical law and chaos or whether you set up kind of a more subtle version of it like with with sort of um i don't know like egyptian notions of mat and 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 societal order and then kind of something like blake's orc and sort of liberty and revolution or whatever but you could you would you would have those contesting forces but they might not necessarily be law and chaos just because you might want to keep it fresher because you know james workshop grandfather wherever the word chaos is very very freely used mm. and has lost some of its power mm. yeah what do you think, Dave? yeah i i definitely agree with that um one of the things that i think kind of separates uh moorcock uh from a lot of you know especially more modern kind of fantasy too is that there isn't so much kind of um hanging about like you know in typical D, you might hang about in a tavern or a town and you know kind of look around and, and do all this kind of stuff i feel like for a more cocky game it'd have to be a little bit more uh sort of on rails than like open world you know what i mean uh, a little bit less sandboxy i mean you know still have those interactions but kind of keep the plot propelling forward because i mean ultimately that's especially the strengths of you know more kind of early morcock too is basically nothing kind of hangs around or just gets dull right we're always going 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 um <clears throat> so i think that like a, a very kind of plot propelled sort of um you know kind of plotted out adventure mm -hmm. is uh, an important way to make a game kind of feel more more cocky and the oh, other thing uh, too is going back to um, like the starting classes from Stormbringer. You know, when you're reading Corum, when you're reading Hawkmoon, when you're reading Elric, he's not really, you know, he's never adventuring around with, you know, three sailors and a leper. He's, you know, you know what I mean? He's, 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 sometimes he's, sailors, sir, but yes. Well, sailors, sure. But, you know, the, 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 the real like important named characters that ideally would make up your party of, champions or champions companions would be you know highly skilled warriors who you know might have 
And this is another thing that's very important too. Um, really powerful artifacts or weapons that could, uh, you know, change the tide of battle. The other thing too is, um, you know, in in certain instances uh, of combat, I think it would be important to, um, as opposed to like in D and D, for instance, where generally you're kind of focused on one to one, even if you're being surrounded by like a million goblins you got to do it like one at a time i think it'd be important to kind of have almost more like a bit more like warhammers kind of like arc sort of system mm -hmm. where like certain attacks or certain things certain items will grant more of an arc where you can just you know hack multiple enemies heads off with one powerful swing of your you know rune blade or whatever um because i think that'll ultimately also kind of give more of that more cocky and feel of this is a very powerful character with a very powerful artifact that's you know boosting up their abilities and um to kind of really get that sort of champion flavor i think you would have to kind of be able to wreak more havoc and carnage while also still being in, a, in an appreciable amount of danger um because yeah like like you said um mutilations things like that getting captured tortured you know Maybe you get a thing implanted in your skull uh, that you now have to deal with some kind of horrible affliction or something. You get your arm cut off or whatever, um, but also have there be kind of cool, you know, sort of deus ex machina kind of artifacts maybe to uh, to deal with those things or to uh, replace lost limbs or something like that. I had a uh, part, one of my, the D&D campaigns I played, my barbarian's arm got blown off by a dragon um, and then I got this cool, like stone elven arm thing. So I was walking around like, you know, pissed off, you know, Conan meets cable or something like that <laughs> with my badass, like, you know, elven robot arm, just like ching, 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 using it as a shield because hey, it's role playing. Why not? Um, you know, so kind of cool stuff like that would be uh, pretty fitting. Um, yeah. So basically sum that up powerful characters powerful artifacts and weapons um lots of enemies to cleave through uh and forward propulsion of plot mm. i would mm -hmm. like to yeah. come in up there i'm i'm not sure you need a railroad plot but what you do need is none of your kind of critical role let's spend half an hour role playing by yeah. fucking tapestry yeah, that, that's know, more what I know, mean, you know, yeah, getting, you're, you're, getting to it. Your, your characters are always, your characters are always broke, because that's like a constant thing in the Elric, isn't it? Moonglum's always thinking, God, Elric's useless, how are we going to pay the bloody in? <laughs> your characters, it doesn't matter how much treasure they get in the last scenario, your characters are always broke. So you don't need to worry about your motivation for anything. And... Um, you know, you've just got about enough supplies, so you don't have to worry around and go fretting around to do anything like that. And maybe a preparedness mechanic or something like that might be an idea. On the cleaving through hordes, Black Hack, while it does sort of fall down at high levels, is quite mm. good for that for warrior characters because what they do is basically get dealer of death. So every level they go up, they get an extra damage die, which the other Ooh. classes don't, but they can split it. So if they're fighting multiple opponents, they can split it amongst the multiple opponents. So some sort of mechanic like that. So if you are high level, you could just, you know, like you say, just cleave through all the 
goblinoids or the you know temple guards or whoever yeah would be, would be quite cool i like uh, the uh, mechanic in barbarians of lemuria where uh-huh. um basically most most villains are mooks and they have like one maximum two hit points or life with each <laughs> and if if you inflict eight points of damage you spread it around Mm-hmm. Um, which means if you're just fighting a massive gang of mooks, which can be dangerous, if you roll a particularly good hit, you wipe out four or five of them, and you know you can just kind of you can explain how the DM can explain how that happens and how that goes down. And the other reason nice. I like Barbarians of Lemuria is that if you're not a warrior, you can still do that. And actually, the capabilities of the characters tend to fall into kind of little career type things career choices so it doesn't matter whether you're a thief it doesn't matter whether you're a i don't know poet it doesn't matter what you are if you roll six on your damage you're going to kill three four five or six mooks because actually in a mocock story it doesn't matter if someone is had a background as a warrior you know Mm -hmm. that doesn't matter all they're all intrinsically powerful and they kill shitloads of bad guys so a system like that, I think, would work for me. Mm-hmm. I think when when it comes to running a game of that type, and again, I've been thinking about this a little bit. I've played a lot of one-shot games. I've played one-shot games that people have run set in Hawkmoon Europe. I've played one-shot games. Uh, Madcap Laughs from White Dwarf for Ooh. Stormbringer. A um, couple of others, and... They've never really felt like games that couldn't have taken place in any fantasy world, but just had kind of, you know, um, references to or trappings of a Moorcock type fantasy setting. Mm-hmm. But they still didn't feel very Moorcocky. And yeah, I think for me, whether it whether it's a railroad plot or whether it's some a sandbox or anything else, and and again, this is something else I'm going to quiz you about, Clarky is. Um, because you've run pretty big sandbox event type campaigns recently, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more. But if if you want to produce a Moorcock type story in a game, it's on a railroad. The protagonists have little to no agency, and the problems are often solved by Deus Ex Machina. And they're split into small episodic encounters or mini quests where there's a central MacGuffin that ties everything mm. together and there's like a, a, a central big villain. But what makes them interesting other than just being exciting, propulsive page turners as individual stories, what makes it interesting is how it fits in to a vast tapestry. So for me, I think the way I'm thinking of it is can you create a more cocky and not a, not a game set in the Young Kingdoms, not a game set in Tragic Millennium Europe, but actually create a Moorcockian framework of games for a campaign, which actually would be satisfying, but only come together over extended play. Right. Because, you know, in, in that kind of setup, you can have those individual games, you can have a game where part of it really is just a caper in a pub you can have all sorts of things but for me the way that world comes together and we mentioned you know getting the players to spend three days on speed on the bog right it's the background for a game (laughs) 
I'm, I'm not into that. I'm into creating it on the fly. Um, no, no. It, uh, well, I, I didn't mean literally. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but I'm, 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 I'd be more into kind of creating that stuff on the fly because the other thing that's very, very common to Moorcock, mm -hmm. especially with things like the Hawkmoon books, is you will create, you will find that there's an entire setting created with an entire race or group of people and it's done and dusted in 30 pages and you move on and you never hear them again. Because they're not actually important, they're just colour. And that is what Moorcock stories are for me. It's a constant parade of event and colour and incident and things that are thrown in for fun and then disposed of straight away. So I kind of like the idea of rather than labouring plot and localised story beats, actually doing something that reproduces kind of the cosmic scope of a Moorcockian kind of game. So a multiverse sandbox, whatever you want to call it, but create new worlds, don't labour the established settings, throw ideas around for fun in play, then abandon them, have yeah. episodic mini scenarios and quests tied to that central MacGuffin, but don't worry about over-labouring a plot and NPCs, because in Moorcock games, if they're not the core characters, NPCs don't last 30 pages. In fact, they don't last 30 pages if they're lucky. Mm -hmm. and, and then they're just done and gone. And you move on to the next crazy, wacky thing. And I kind of like the idea of... And you're doing it at the moment with your unit campaign. And you did it before with your Tenerife campaign. I like the idea of having kind of a, a series of connected games, which... You ran all the Tenerife games, of course, and I'll, I'll get you to explain that because they won't be aware of this. You ran all the Tenerife games, but the unit game, you've got multiple GMs, but you, all the same, it's tied to that central conceit of this is kind of a a shared mini gaming universe. Yeah. And that really appeals to me. But So just, you, you ran this, this Tenerife game. Tell us about it. How did it come about? Okay, not terribly more cocky. No, no, but, but it's the but, sand, it's the sandbox setting. It's that the I'm sandbox bit. I'll explain. So, um, Tenerife is uh, the largest of the Canary Islands. It's off the coast of Morocco, but it's a Spanish island. It's a very popular holiday resort. I have been there quite a lot because my parents used to have a timeshare there, uh, and then I've been there independently with my wife. That's great. Why are you talking about that, Andrew? Because going there a lot. I've seen in the kind of 80 kilometres by 40 kilometres of that island how utterly varied the terrain was. And I'd, I'd mm. always go in on these kind of visits to these various Southern Europeans equivalent to Florida, um, seeing the how overcrowded they were in terms of resource. Everything's kind of shipped in for the tourists. And for, like, if there was an apocalypse, this would be the place you would not want to be. And you'd have such a mix of people. And that idea germinated with me for probably the best part of a decade. But uh, long story short, I got down to designing it. And I thought, well, you're going to have to have all these little communities and stuff, but I didn't really want to actually design, 
you know, 100 communities on an island or whatever, because I thought they'll all end up being a bit samey because they're going to come from my mind. So I basically, using some mechanics from a, a game called uh, Role Master from Campaign Law, um, got some sketches of what those villages or communities were in terms of demographics, number of people and the age range. Got some idea of the personality of the leaders using a card-based system from Tony Baff's War Games campaigns. It was a he was basically like the British answer to Dave Arnson. He was doing stuff that was role-playing before it was role-playing, when he was running a high boring campaign in the 60s and 70s. And I had that template. And then when I ran the games, I had a session zero where I, the players basically picked a random hex. And then for that hex and its neighbours, they went and they looked at it and they designed through a kind of roundtable discussion, what their community was like, what their immediate neighbours were like. And through that sort of structured questioning, which isn't anything original, again, this was something that I kind of borrowed from Hill Folk and adapted. They structured and pulled together what their community like and what their immediate neighbours were like. And the long-term effect of this was as I ran six campaigns over last year was that we populated a big chunk of Tenerife and I was able to, being a very lazy man, able to just steal bits for earlier campaigns had created and generated as well as the actions of the player groups in those campaigns to generate plots or Easter eggs or uh, nods to the later games, creating a, a bigger shared world. And obviously Twitter and sharing campaign reports. Also being a lazy man, I got the players to write campaign reports and there was a lot of creativity in how that was done. We had poems and songs and Lego-based webcomics and all sorts. Um, but yeah, so it generated this kind of community-based thing. It was good. But you, you've just, you, you started off, you prefaced that by saying it wasn't particularly Mokokian. But actually, yeah. you've just said lots of things that are really Mokokian. So draw, drawing on the early episodes to pull out elements to repeat them and further develop them through other campaigns. So you got those uh. e you got those echoes mm -hmm. of of older stuff reiterating through throughout the six campaigns. And actually, all of this was taking place in a shared world. All of them, whilst never directly interacting each other. Actually, as the as it went on, they affected each other, and the other players were aware because they were reading the campaign notes from the subsequent games, recognizing elements from their games in those games, and that created this shared, really, a mini multiverse. It just happened to be Tenerife rather than fifteen different spheres of existence you know, slightly detached from Coram's world. And this is why I've been thinking about it, because I think you could absolutely take that setup mm -hmm. and use it to create a multiversal campaign by doing exactly the same thing. Now, okay, you've still got to cope with the vagaries of players, um, because in, in our case, I think it's fair to say that our small group probably differed quite considerably from some others. 
You were maniacs. But, yeah, so so you were you were running <laughs> two two games consecutively, uh, concurrently. Sorry, Tuesday yeah. night and Thursday night. And on the Tuesday night game, there were ex Royal Marine snipers. And on the Thursday night game, and, and and nuns. Yeah, and on the Thursday night game, it was retired stand-up comics from I don't know Warrington or wherever, <laughs> trying to trying to set up a, a a variety show to cheer the people of the island up, and that, that was essentially our party. Nevertheless, it all took place within the same world. Tonally, there were differences. But I, th I think that approach would really work. I think that sandbox approach could really work. Now, you you ran all six of those, but at the moment you're doing it with uh, the unit campaign as well, aren't you? Yeah. And you've got so multiple GMs involved. So the unit campaign is a unit a paramilitary group from Doctor Who. It's set in 70s, 80s period Doctor Who, and it's basically the idea it's what unit does when the Doctor isn't about. So... Um, again, this is an original idea. My my local group played this probably about ten years ago. Um, but there's other GMs who are doing scenarios. So I know um, Jim McCarthy is going to run it at Grogmeet, for example. Um, other people have got other other scenarios up to run. I, I've run one scenario for it, which I didn't actually write. It was written by somebody else, and I'm, I'm starting another one tomorrow night. Uh, and I'm going to start with the Monday night group um, after the summer holidays as well. But there's, there's other GMs coming in. Again, it's just the idea that people run their games, share their campaign reports. You know, we don't need to be too heavy on continuity, etc. but we'll just generate this shared universe. Hmm. On the kind of attitude I've said, it's kind of thing pre-crisis comics in terms of, you know, there's stuff to pick and choose to, but don't get too hot up on the continuity and think you have to do things in a certain way because somebody else has done it. Mm. You know, Batman can be Adam West, you know, in, in comics. Batman can be Adam West in your comic, even if he's mean and moody in Detective. Mm. I'm running around with Robin and Batman. That's that's fine because it's just different facets of the character. And equally, if somebody's going to play, you know, a particular NPC in a particular way, that's fine because it just balances out. Yeah, it's all exciting stuff. And of course, we play for the first time on Thursday with with, mm. uh, with your unit game so i'm very much looking forward to that so yeah I, I think actually the sandbox approach that you've taken with with tenerife and, and that you've further developed with the unit campaign i think is almost the perfect container for the kind of game or mohawkian game that i would want to play in because much as i love counting up the coppers to buy a two-man canoe or understanding the price of a clay jar or any of these other things, I, I would actually prefer to, to play that kind of setup with a nice, simple, loose system, which means that everybody can excel. I love the idea of everybody being skinned at the beginning of the game because that's not just an Elric thing, that's a Conan thing as well. Don't matter mm. how, how many riches he got in the in the last story, he will be skinned at the beginning of the next one. Uh, so you know, I've never really been into the amassing treasure and strongholds and and all that kind of thing that you get in uh, in, in Dungeons and Dragons. So yeah, I think that would work perfectly. 
So that is my proposition resulting from Mocock and RPGs episode 4. My proposition is for a Mocockian sandbox game where all of the localised games are wacky, crazy, throwaway, but the core tenets remain the same. And we can have the core McGuffins, the artefacts, core villains, whatever we want to call them. Yeah, that's my proposition. I'm not going to do it because I'm too lazy. And I'm too I'm too bad a GM. Oh, I was, I was looking forward to that, man. Well, maybe one day. Maybe I'll give it some more thought and we'll talk about it in Mocock and RPGs. Oh, don't don't think about things, just do <laughs> I have to, When it comes to running a game, I have to think about it for like two years. That doesn't no. mean I'm doing homework for two years. That no. just means I'm preparing myself for the possibility of doing it for two years. Just, do, I mean, I, I, I'd be interested to see Dave's view on this, but I, I kind of think, I still think you need that element of doom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you can you can introduce that, but you mean doing it mechanically? No, I think just just just. I mean that knowing that that's coming, I'm almost. Yeah, that's that's all got to be tied in with your um, with your central MacGuffin, hasn't mm. it? And that's the that's the thing about the MacGuffin and the the overriding villain who you might not ever even come across until the very climax of everything. That that's. That's what drives the plot. That's what drives so would the you, doom. Would you have one MacGuffin? So, so say you were doing this and you were doing it with four parties. Hmm. Would you have one uber villain for all of them? Oh, I don't know. I ain't hmm. got that far in my thinking. Um, you, you, you need you need villains of the week, don't you? You need your. Oh yeah, no, you need, never mind villains of the week. But, you, you, yeah. you need your gain of the damned. Yeah, but, your flaming gods or whatever. They're, yeah. they're there. Yeah. yeah, you need your gain of the damned, but but you also need that element of you know in Elric it's like Ariok sometimes is a help, sometimes is a hindrance. Is is he a villain or yes, no, whatever? And and actually find out who the villain is through play. Mm. You know, I, I would prefer to have the idea where you know you've you've got this group, you've got this setting, and there are powerful adversaries or or support agencies or whatever but actually mm. let the players define to some degree the direction and ultimately as long as it feels as long as you use your skills to make it feel like there's some element of predestiny even when there isn't and that's a really key gm skill if you're running a game on a railroad make them feel like it isn't if if the game is on a railroad make them feel like it isn't and if it's the opposite you know make them feel like something was predestined and that's all about gm skill isn't it but actually deciding at the very beginning of an extended kind of multiverse campaign this guy is the villain i think actually channels people down a funnel because you want the opportunity for people to actually say you know what i think zion bag is a really swell guy and i'm going to take his side against x and if that's the way it goes, well, the doom will follow that path as well. But I don't think it should be predetermined. Mm-hmm. Mm. Give because you know the players need to feel like they've got some level of urgency, even when they're fucking doomed anyway. It's just so, who, so, so who is going to apply the doom? So you know? uh, this is something I'm very comfortable with, but I know other people aren't. But that means that potentially you can have P versus P mm. in your final. Ragnarok, 
which which I'm cool with, as as you know. Yeah. Um, but that actually happened in Loz's game that he ran. Yeah. Um, Loz ran a game that started off as a Hawkmoon game. It was set in Tragic Millennium Europe, and within four or five games, it became a multiverse hopping game. I took it over for a period of time. Um, my character about Gerard Connolly bowed out. Loz came in, brought his character in. I ran it for a while, then it went back to Loz. And at one point, there was so much friction and conflict between Gerard Arthur Connolly and another character, one of the characters who was in volume, one of the journal, as it happens, um, that actually that became a player-on-player a, a player grudge that actually did manifest itself as um, Gerard Arthur Connolly taking quite specific and deliberate action to dispose of him but actually yeah. that char that character later <clears throat> comes back as the knight of thorns with certain qualities um and actually came back as a character again and that character played right through to the end i think loz's idea originally he had this he had this big talk with paul the character about how this character would play into the overall um story and plot and i think loz had certain expectations of how he'd play it but he didn't. He just played him as the dickhead that he played him <laughs> for the first <laughs> the first dozen games that led to the con the uh, the confrontation in the first place. So so Loz's idea of having this defined path and the doom for this mm -hmm. character all fell to pieces because players will be players. Yep. So you've just got to be a little <laughs> bit more um, accommodating when it comes to the players. But ultimately, that that game that game had a, a completely hilarious ending which at the time i think loz was really annoyed about but the more time passes between that game ending and us being able to cast our minds back and think about it the better and more more cocky and that ending becomes mm -hmm. it was wonderful and that game ran for like two two and a half years and uh and it was great there was so much incident and again at one point we, we were in a, you know we're in a place there's eldron there's a massive wall there's airships there's crazy bat creatures chaotic bat creatures that lasted for a game then we moved on we never saw my red from him again and it felt really more cocky and because it was just yeah. an episode an episode of, of overcoming the odds and heroic action and but actually what was really important was the MacGuffin, you know and and getting to the next stage and trying to stop something terrible or trying to reinforce some power or whatever it was. I don't know, it was years ago, I forgot now. But my memories of it are really fond because it felt like a series of Mocock books, complete with character fallouts, protagonists, turns, um, random weird. It's, it's like reading, Dave, when we read uh, To Save Tanalon. Yeah. And every chapter, he just threw in yeah. something new, and then it was gone. I, yeah, and I think that's also just a great example of, um, yeah, sort of how sessions could go. I mean, mm. you know, each week you're in like a new location, traveling around. I mean, because ultimately, yeah, a lot, a lot of the Moorcock stories do become, as you call them, uh, travel logs. Mm. Where basically, you know, the heroes, the protagonists find themselves in wildly different not just regions, but, you know, places and time and space dealing with all kinds of different stuff. And I mean, that not only makes it feel more, more cocky and, but like the, the unexpected nature of uh, where it could turn at any point. Um, 
is is exciting and, mm-hmm. and it's cool and that's you know that, that's why stories like like to rescue Tamlin or something like that for instance is so cool because not only and that's the other thing too the 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 locations should be sort of metaphorical or they should be based on a theme that relates to you know the MacGuffin, hmm. the overall plot, you know, whatever. So yeah. the more kind of thematic that each each location can be, or metaphorical, or just totally acid drenched madness, <laughs> the better, really. And yeah. and that's ultimately, um, even like in in certain D and D games, like where I found Dark Party, you know, travels to another dimension or another world or something like that it's more like oh we're in like a a fey land or you know or we're in you know some some other thing it doesn't they've never really done moorcock's kind of multi-dimensional traveling super well maybe with the exception of like some like the planescape kind of stuff that that gets a little bit closer in in some themes um to some of what moorcock touches on um but ultimately, you know, never, never, never quite reaching what he does. Um, but yeah, that's definitely got to be a huge part of it is just being, being able to end up some completely different place where maybe the laws of physics don't apply anymore or they're applied differently or, you know, who knows, some weird planes. Ultimately, like, because from parts of Quorum books, like that, that was kind of like the coolest part was when he's, you know, just jumping through different dimensions and all of a sudden the setting is totally different mm. and there's just weird creatures flying around all of a sudden and now you got to deal with that you know and it it, uh, it, it kind of keeps you on your toes um yeah so a, a, dozen guys, a dozen guys gallop up on weird horses in flame-like armor uh, yeah they're re- and they're really cool and they all have a fight and they're all dead move on yep <laughs> yep <laughs> through a giant lion's mouth where yeah. you just proceed to trip <laughs> balls and you know That's see all right, kinds yeah. of the monolith from 2001 a space odyssey if yeah. that thing took acid yeah. um and yeah that that kind of just psychedelic weirdness uh should also completely be intrinsic to the game yeah would, you know <laughs> would there be any um jerry cornelius influence on this game absolutely because you know one of the worlds could be swinging 1960s london mm. with a difference and, and and that's the entire point of it but you know you, it's just like in exactly the same way your tenerife game the common thread was tenerife everything else was completely defined by the behavior of the players you know and and it only kind of takes a, a, a little additional kind of twist for you to say well actually this isn't tenerife this is i don't know Tanalorn. Tanalorn, yeah. Um yeah. and um when they're in the east of um you know the island, they're I don't know, in thirteen dimensions away in the ghost worlds. Uh or whatever, yeah, you could you could do absolutely anything you wanted. You could do anything you wanted, but of course what you get is you get the echoes of it all kind of running through. And you could have same characters or different versions of the same character in different settings you know in the tenerife game for example you know not although i want to kind of put it on myself roy savaloy could have traveled across the island yeah. and, and been part of several of those campaigns but actually if it's a jerry cornelius thing roy savaloy is actually um i don't know a laundrette owner in camden in that world or you know you get what i yeah. mean um, so yeah. yeah absolutely you could do anything but i think 
you know what what my preference would be is, is rather than having this campaign where one one team are in the young kingdoms one team are in tragic millennium europe oh. create new shit yeah oh no definitely create new shit yeah yeah but it was just just whether it was anchored in the sword and sorcery milieu yeah or whether it because because obviously there is and it, it's creaky as fuck but there is a dimension hopping game which does have um some universes in it with some well one universe in it with very weird physics at least which is lords of creation for uh, instance yeah that's a name i'm aware of but i never read it or seen it it's it's um it's due some modernization let's put it that way yeah. uh but it it's got some intriguing elements to it so it's got like an entire world that's based on reading the personifications in Blake's epic poetry as like gods and goddesses. Right. And cool. and, and and there's like a they they live on like a kind of um Pellucidar type world and it's got like stats for like orc or for like or Usrazen and stuff like that from Blake's poetry mm. and things. Cool. Um and then it's got like a Celtic alternate history and you know, a sort of generic science fiction world and mm. different bits and bobs. But, but you know, it's got it, it very much kind of throwing a lot of different ideas at the plates and encouraging people to do that kind of thing. But the system wouldn't stand up for what you want to do thematically in terms mm. of the big heroic. You'd, you'd have to go up in the levels to do that sort of thing mm. because you get weird powers and eventually become a Lord of Creation and then you can become a GM yourself and go out and buy Lords of Creation. <laughs> very meta yeah yeah well yeah. sounds well, pretty you, cool though you know on that on that i think we'll better leave it for today but that's lots and lots of food for thought and i really do like the idea of like a, a multiversal sandbox approach so thanks for coming on clark and talking about your history with mocock and uh your experience with running these sandbox games Thanks, Dave, for joining us well, again. Just, just when, but when are you running it, Andy? That's, oh, that's the important question. 2034. <laughs> 2034. After I've done the first Colonel Pyatt book. There you go. I'll, 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 lay my, uh, I'll lay my marker down. I'm sure I hear 2024, yeah? 2024. <laughs> yeah, listen back to the podcast to find out. Right. <laughs> Cheers, chaps. All right, take care. Thanks, Andy. Good time to Andy. Massive thanks to Clarky and Dave for joining me in Derry and Tom's. And you can find archived episodes of Clarky's podcast, Dissecting Worlds, at his blog, clarkythecruel.wordpress.com, along with write-ups of loads of his games, including the Tenerife and Unit campaigns. I'll link to those pages in the show notes. We also referenced Jason Connolly's podcast, and that is the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and you can find that on Anchor, FM, Spotify, and all the decent podcatchers. Since our last show, we've had some nice comments. First, from YouTube, on our The Rats episode, the Halloween special from 2020. TetsuCat13 said, Fantastic. I remember buying The Rats from Lewis. I was the first person at school to get it. We loved it, and it scared many people as I lent it around. I still have it, but someone let their sister scratch across the rat's face on the cover. I've just picked up two copies from eBay, but they don't have that faded, yellow, well-read and passed-around feel to them. I also bought Lair, The Cats, Squirm, Jaws, and 
in the tradition of the rats, Night of the Crabs, back in the day. Love the way you read and discuss the book. I'd forgotten how awful some bits were. Thanks. Well, thank you, Tetsucat13, and do check out our following year's Halloween special in 2021 when we had a lot of fun with Night of the Crabs, and also followed up a couple of months later with Crabs Moon. For this year, it's looking extremely likely that James Herbert will be back this Halloween, as the fog is way out in the lead in our patron's poll, way ahead of Origin of the Crabs in second place, and, far behind, in joint third, The Devils of D-Day and Slugs. And also on YouTube, also on the rats, Ecstatic commented that The woman cutting her front bottom with a spirits bottle was a hot topic of conversation at school. Same at my school, Ecstatic. Same at my school. Heady days. Over on the blog, NZ Painter 4 said, Totally fascinating. Thanks very much. Bob Haberfield was a complete mystery to me, not least because I never knew his name until your podcast, even though I knew his artwork from the 70s when I started reading Moorcock. Just looking through my Mayflowers, and it was a shame that he was never crediting them for the covers. The same with the Jack Vance Mayflower editions. Keep chill on the Lunar Ray Byways. Well, thanks NZ Painter 4, we will always endeavour to keep it chill. Furthermore, Bob Haberfield covered Mayflower editions of Jack Vance form a definite gap on my shelf. So another book quest begins. So, before we go, thanks as ever to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Picanti, Sebastian Weetabix, Tim Cardos, and Dave Dempster. And to our chaos engineers. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And to our Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mac Hebden, Graham Holden, and Jason Connolly. Thanks Jason for that prompt to get back to RPGs, and part two of this summer 2022 diptych will be along in a few days. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons. Joe Monty, Clark of the Cruel, Andy Darby, Gareth Wilson, Imria, Janie Stim, Laps Gamer, Liam J, Miles Reed Labato, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last but never least, Robert McMillan. Now, speaking of Miles, he's recently launched a new podcast for all casual Trek fans. Get the cheese to sit bay. The doctor should look at it as soon as possible. It is the way in which we propagate our species. Hi, I'm Charlie. He's a lifelong X-Men fan. I'm Miles. He's a lifelong Doctor Who fan. If anyone can objectively rank every single episode of Star Trek, it should be us. Two people who think that Star Trek's pretty decent. And so, come join us on our... Casual Trek. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that yep. was a good one. Yeah. Fuck it, we'll do it live. <laughs> <laughs> Ha 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 ha!
Fuck it. We'll do it live. Oh, casual track, everybody. <laughs> right. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. You can listen to Breakfast in the Ruins radio via the internet, most easily via Radio Garden, through app or browser. Just search BITR Breakfast in the Ruins or look at the Bradford UK blob on Radio Garden. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, until we meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.